Oh, Father, let us be your bride who recognizes your holiness and your majesty this morning, even as it is taught by your apostle in your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And let your people be seated. The way God intended it to be, obviously, if Romans 9 has anything to say about it. So let's read verses 13 through 23. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you? To reply against God. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor, another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Oh, Father, let your Holy Spirit be present today in this, the proclamation and exposition of your holy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's all sorts of commentary on this, trying to clean it up. But if you clean up, have you noticed that Paul Paul notices, as he's saying it, that it's objectionable on a human level? He knows that. That's why he poses these rhetorical questions. He's anticipating. Remember, there's no audience. He's writing it down. In fact, I think it's Tertius, right, who's writing it? His secretary's writing for him? And so he's writing it down, and he's anticipating, if I say this, they're going to say this. So he pauses, and he makes sure we know who we're arguing against. You know, we can open a commentary any day of the week. We can listen to one of my sermons and say, and I don't think you had that right. But you can't do that with Paul. There are commentators who say, Paul is so good and so smart and so gifted, but he errs in these few small areas. Certainly Paul was human and he erred in certain small areas, but not in writing the word of God. That's such a low view of scripture. You know, I've heard people say, uh, well, I like the, the gospels, but I don't like the epistles. Or I like the gospels, I just don't believe the miracles. Friends, this is not a la carte Christianity. We take it as it comes. It's not two from column A, two from column B. You're not in a Chinese restaurant. What do they call it? Poo-poo platter? <laughs> 
That translates badly in English, I've got to tell you. <laughs> it always made me laugh. I never could order it. <laughs> poo poo platter. Friends, that's not what this is about. The apostle knows he's sausage making here. He knows it's difficult. He knows it goes against the grain. And I'm going to tell you something. It goes against the American grain in a way that no other people on earth ever felt. We are a nation full of ourself and our self-esteem, and we think that's going to get us somewhere. The word esteem is used once in the New Testament that I know of, and it was Paul saying to the Philippians, esteem others as better than yourself. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? In other words, you loved the Lord, you received the gospel, you heard it, you accepted it. But now he's just gone too far. This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? They followed him no more. He went and insulted your intellect. That's what Paul is concerned about here. But he's giving us a pause He's saying, don't voice that too quickly. Friends, the Apostle Peter has said of Paul that his writings are first inspired by God. Peter said this of Paul. If you remember, they weren't always friends. Paul wasn't with the original 12, right? He was born as one out of due time, he said. So Peter says that Paul's words are inspired. And secondly, he notes that they're hard to understand. Paul is doing the real teaching here. And so Peter writes this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He writes, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things which are hard to understand. So Peter knows that not not, theology is not always easy. But we learn it because we love the Lord and would know more about him. And so Peter goes on and he said, these things are hard to understand. And what makes it worse is there are untaught and unstable stable people twisting them to their own destruction as they do the rest of the what? Scriptures. In other words, what Paul writes is Scripture, just like the rest of the Scripture. So if you go against Paul, you've got to go against Peter. How much of the Bible do you want to hack off because it's hard to understand? Or because you were raised up by an untaught and unstable person? Peter establishes three essential points with this commendation of his beloved brother, Paul. First, he offers the right hand of fellowship to Paul. Now, we know, if you read the book of Galatians, that Paul and Peter had a fight. (laughs) I withstood him to his face, Paul said, because he was to be blamed. And I won't get into the meat of that right now. They weren't always on the same page. But Peter was humble enough to recognize that Paul was on God's page. So first, he offers Paul the right hand of fellowship. Secondly, he notes that Paul teaches wisdom in all his epistles, even wisdom that's not simple theology, but rather things hard to understand. And due to the difficult nature of some of his teachings, there are some who are content to twist them to teach what they are not intended to teach. 
He speaks of the presence in the church of so-called untaught and unstable people. And a third thing Peter does, and perhaps more important evaluation of this apostle, is that he equates Paul's writings with the whole of inspired teaching, that is, the rest of the scriptures. What we're reading is scripture. So when we come to question it, we are questioning God. And let me say, there are ways to do this. But sarcasm isn't one of them. Arrogance isn't one of them. There are ways to come before God and question doubtful things. But Paul's slowing us down here. Paul's asking us to recognize who we are before the one whom we're questioning. And maybe not question. And so he comes to a conclusion that I think every professed believer must come to, and that is that to twist or mold or form or distort what the Word of God is saying leads to personal destruction of one form or another. They twist it to their own destruction. You can twist the gospel to your own destruction. It's one thing to be ignorant of the Word of God. And let's face it, most of us are until we come to Christ. And a, long, a lot of the time, churches keep us that way. It's kind of safer to go into the hard teachings that separates people. It's difficult. Churches p- particularly avoid it. I've seen it all my life. Um, there's something to be said for that, I suppose. I suppose in, a, in another group, you can teach the difficult things, the hard things, to people who you think are ready to hear them. I I don't suppose that's a completely bad idea, but then you never have expository preaching. You can never just go through an epistle of Paul. You have to stop at the hard things and jump over them and say, no, it's too hard for you. But God gave it to Paul to give to all the Romans. I can't imagine that all the Romans were these spiritual giants ready to receive the deep things. It's another thing. It's one thing to be ignorant. It's another thing to be cognizant to know the word of God, to become familiar with it, and at the same time to deny the essential truth of it. It's neither right nor safe to play fast and loose with holy writ. And if you'll notice, when Paul asks the question, he always goes back to Scripture. And God said to Moses, and God said to Rebekah, and God said about Jacob and Esau, and God said to Pharaoh. He always goes back and shows That, friends, the doctrine we have today is not new. If you haven't heard it, then you missed it. But now you're here. Rejoice. Hence warnings like this one. Peter writes to believers and he says, For if after they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they're again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Would have been better not to know it all. That's frightening to me. Especially when you see people who stay in the church just until they hear something from God they don't like and then they're gone. you got just enough to destroy yourself. And Peter concludes with this graphic analogy. He quotes from the Proverbs. He says, A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. And he's not talking about dogs and sows. He's talking about untaught and unstable people, spiritually speaking. 
That's essentially what Paul is saying in the verse we have before us. Who are you, O man? He might have asked, are you like this dog or this sow? What did he say to the Galatians? O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you turning away so soon from the mercy of God by which you were saved? What does it take for you to disregard the plain teaching of the written word? Are you untaught or unstable? That's a question we should ask ourselves. Am I one of the untaught or unstable? And if so, get taught. Come to the meetings. Come to the services. You know, I have to tell you, it's, it's very fearful to stand in the pulpit. I know you think, oh, Dan's done it for 27 years. It's no problem. It's fearful to me every time. I always said this to John. I always said there's always a nervousness because of what you're doing and what you have to say. Oh, great, Paul said it. He's been dead 2,000 years, and he wrote it down, and we can read it. He doesn't have to live through the persecution anymore. He's with the Lord. But we all are still here having to deal with what he gave us as the word of God, and we have to grapple with it, not just twist it, but unlock it. The difficult thing here is that an untaught person generally does not know the extent to which he's untaught. That's a hard thing. When someone thinks he's really smart but isn't, it's very hard to get through that. Unstable people do not see themselves as unstable. They see themselves as overworked, overburdened, full of legitimate excuses for not staying on course with the spiritual disciplines of regular Sunday worship, weekly Bible study, use of their unique gifts for the edification of the body. They're unstable in prayer and thankfulness and in circumstances. And they're unstable in praising God. That's what he's talking about. People who are unstable. Teetering Christians. Always on the edge. Always ready to believe your own excuse. It's a great danger. Jesus hated excuses. He has a whole section on it in the Gospels. If you see yourself in any of these descriptions, it's no wonder that you're finding the deep things of God's word to be distasteful. They're new to you. They're an acquired taste, like kids that didn't like vegetables, and now they do. They got older. They got more used to it. They realized it was good for them. This is the apostle putting a halt to the conversation. He's stopping it because he knows it's hard. He wants us to sit back and recognize the greatness of God and to develop humility when we approach him. He's putting a halt to the conversation regarding the doctrine of election and the character of God. And it's more than a halt, though. It's a stern rebuke. It's a warning. It's a technique he's using to get a hearer or a reader of his teaching to think before he answers. Is there unrighteousness with God? That's a pretty hefty thing to start believing He's asking you to stand back and consider who you're talking about when you think that way. But it's more than that. It's a shepherd's restraining hand to allow we, the disciples, the sheep, not to stray too far along our own path, in our own way of thinking. He's stopping us. He's asking us to consider, who are you, O man, to reply against God? He's led us into a dangerous pasture, and it's his desire to lead us out, but we can all get hung up in the pasture. There are enemies about, 
and so the apostle is raising his hand to halt the progress of the flock until they're ready to go all the way with the shepherd. And to go all the way is to recognize who you are. And the way we do that is to consider first who God is. Who is God? Friends, this is no new teaching. It should not have taken any mature believer by surprise. There's plenty of teaching in the scripture that the Lord God and his son Jesus Christ are known for their long-suffering with regard to the searching hearts of their followers. Come, let us reason together, God said to Isaiah, right? Abraham went along the way and sort of bartered with God. Moses complained to God quite a bit. Job did. But in a spirit that God received. We have to be careful to emulate that spirit when we come to this verse. Who are you, O man? We must be warned to go so far and no farther without passing to consider the signpost that lies ahead. We may profess doubt without sinning, if we're careful, or we can profess doubt with sinning. We may profess confusion without sinning or misunderstanding, or innocent questioning of God's truth. But we must never do so as we would any other kid in the schoolyard, or another man on the street, or a son or daughter, or a friend or a stranger. We're not talking to them. When we doubt this, we're doubting God. It's time in the teaching to pause and consider to whom we are speaking. And we're speaking to holiness itself. We're speaking to the creator of the universe who made all things according to the counsel of his own will. He didn't raise up architects to counsel with. It was just he, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit at the table saying, how shall we do this? It's time to be as Moses was when he approached the burning bush. Remember this? Go back to Exodus 3. Moses is tending the sheep of his father Jethro in Midian. He's 80 years old, by the way, and has not had a real conference with God yet. But he's about to. And so he sees this shiny object on the hill, a bush that's burning, that's not consumed. I must go forth and see this great sight. And as he comes forth, a voice comes out of the bush and says, Too fast. Approach slowly. Consider yourself. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Do something to show that you're coming in humility. And not just with an uh, arrogant curiosity. And then God said, I am the God of your father. Now listen what God says. And I'm going to relate this to Romans 9. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now why does he say that? He could have just said, I'm the God of Abraham, couldn't he? But then others would say he's the God of Abraham the God of Ishmael, and the God of Esau. That's what the Muslim world says, by the way. This is why he always tells us who he's God of. Because the covenant traveled that way and not that way. For Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Once he knew what it was, the shiny object didn't matter. He realized whose presence he was in. I hope there are times in your spiritual life when you go to the Scripture and read it slowly and recognize the glory in it and recognize that all the other things that are coming into your mind as you're praying or as you're, that are 
confusing you or distracting you from what you should be thinking about, all those other things are as nothing compared to what's being taught to you. It's a holy experience with God. So the apostle offers us a warning like that. When you feel compelled to question the teaching, when you feel emboldened to offer an opinion in passing, stop and question yourself before you presume to question the Almighty and ask yourself, who am I to speak against God? It amazes me how quickly so-called Christians would speak against Paul, like he's just some other guy. Paul knows the teaching is hard. He's aware that for some it's difficult. And I'm here to tell you, it all, it's always difficult. <laughs> it never gets easy. I mean, I accept it. I glory in it. But I know it's hard. It isn't, oh, I glory in it. Now it's easy for me. I just, I just understand it. I don't really understand it, nor do I expect to have full understanding of a God that created everything in existence. So when you feel compelled to question the teaching... Ask first, who am I to question it? Men have lost their lives by being presumptuous in approaching God. Have you read 2 Samuel 6? Uzzah steadied the ark, put up his hand to steady the ark, zapped out of existence. You don't get that close to holy things. When you're just a dirty guy, I heard one, I think it was R.C. Sproul, who said it would have been cleaner, a more sanctified situation for Uzzah to have let that ark fall in the dirt and be defiled by dirt than be defiled by an unshriven sinner who presumed to touch holy things. Nadab and Abihu, remember them? They're they're the sons of Aaron. And they brought strange offerings, the Bible says, strange fire to the altar and were zapped out of existence. Moses' nephews... God is no respecter of persons. Leviticus 10. They were consumed where they stood for daring to put themselves in God's place. There's no place for sarcasm. There's no, this is no time to make a name for yourself or to seek your own glory or to assert your great intelligence. Both Peter and Paul have asserted that Paul's writings are the word of God. Remember John's assessment? I've never said it this way before, but John's assessment is the deity of Scripture. For the Word was God. Be careful how you treat the Word, because the Word is God. The Logos is the Theos. Consider that when you question a passage of Scripture, you're questioning God, and that's what Paul is doing here. Be certain that your question is offered in a right spirit, and know to whom you're speaking. Know that you're speaking up and not down. Paul has dared to suggest the challenge, what shall we say then, is there unrighteousness with God? But you notice how he doesn't let it hang out in the air too long? He says certainly not. I think it made him fearful to even say it rhetorically. I know we love to suggest that when we question the word, we're not questioning God. See, that's the other aspect of it. No, no, I'm just questioning Pastor Dan's interpretation of it. A little round the bend, that's legitimate. A lot of men get it wrong, so I get that. And if the representative is me or some other preacher, well enough, you can, you can say, I, I don't think you got it right. 
But Paul's an apostle of Christ, friends. We're not to presume that our knowledge of God is greater than his. He's appointed for a special purpose. He's God's instrument to instruct us. His word in such things is God's word. That's why we halt and recognize what we're standing before. And if we do not know this, then we have a low view of the word of God in general and have disregarded the view of the other eminent apostle, Peter, on this matter. How many apostles do you want to go against? Because you don't like what was said. And by the way, all the feedback I got this week was just inquisitive and, and was good and was positive. It's just that I'm following a text, and Paul is making sure that we don't go on ahead arrogantly. He's making sure. So if I am faithful to the text, I have to make sure with him. And that's my task. And so I'll stop here just like Paul stopped here. So as not to lead us into a sin of personal pride. Even those of us who believe the doctrine and are not troubled by it, there is temptation to sin in it. There's a tendency to rush in and defend it to the hurt of another person. Perhaps a weaker brother or sister. Boldness is one thing, arrogance is another Disregard for tender consciences of our brethren is another thing entirely. So how should we approach this matter without offending God or the other saints? We shall not be like the Pharisees, of whom Jesus said, They bind heavy burdens hard to bear, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. We'll not be like that. We'll bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 1-2. If someone's burdened by this, share the burden with them. Don't just rush in and rip out what you think they should have known and stuff in what you think they should. If you're a young disciple, a so-called weaker brother, not my term, it's Paul's term. We could say it's the Holy Spirit's term. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. We don't go in to show the weaker brother just how smart we are and what they have to look forward to, after all, they could become like us, knowing all things. So to the weaker brother, I would say that we're not to engage you in disputes over doubtful things, the Bible says. But this isn't a doubtful thing. See, there's the problem. And the weaker brother is just the, the younger brother, the one who's less attuned to the deep things of God, the, the less than elementary principles, the greater principles of God's word. To the weaker brother, I would say that we are not to engage you in disputes over, over doubtful things, but the sovereignty of God in all things is not a doubtful thing. So it is legitimate to have this conversation. It's a certain and immutable attribute of God, sovereignty. If you're going to know God, you have to know what sovereignty is and that he has it. And it is, he does all things to please himself. And so it's time for the weaker brother to become strong. You know, we're very careful with the weaker brethren in the church. I hear it all the time. But the weaker brother is not supposed to stay weak. He's supposed to get strong. And the stronger brother in his strength is not supposed to be arrogant. He's supposed to be concerned about the tender conscience of one deemed weaker. That means you don't go up and say, oh, I get it, you're a weaker brother. Well, see, I'm stronger, I can help you out. 
you know, we think I, you know, had a lady in the church. <laughs> and she just told it like it is. You know? Like every politician always pretends they tell it like it is, but they really don't. But really all she was saying is I don't have any tact. I don't think ahead of time. I don't have any timing. I just blurt out without a filter whatever I want, even if it hurts you. Friends, these things ought not to be so. We have to have a filter. We have to recognize that some things are difficult to understand and to apply. And so I said to her, why do you think that's not sin? That you just burst in and say whatever's on your mind unfiltered because it may or may not be true. It's not how it's done. Who are you, O oh man, to deal with God's people in that way? We're careful with one another's consciences. We're not trying to close down a discussion. We're trying to open it up and let it flower. And so it's time for the weaker brother to become stronger, as I've said. Don't stay weaker. Don't stay offended by the, by the freedoms of the stronger brethren who know that they can eat food offered to idols. Why? Because there are no idols. They're not really gods. So the stronger brother does it, but the weaker brother says, no, I can't eat that food, and neither should you. So as it comes, the weaker brother tends to be more judgmental, and the stronger brother tends to be more disrespectful at times. And we'll get to it in Romans 14, because that's where it's talked about. And so it's time for the weaker brother to become stronger and for the stronger brother to become softer and tender. And so the Bible says to the brethren, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. It comes time to start partaking of the full nourishment of what God has for us. We've got to wean off the milk. We already know it. And we have to go into the deep things of God. We will proceed in the teaching the way Paul proceeded. We will consider the antiquity of the teaching. And that insofar as the scriptural record is concerned, there's nothing new under the sun, not even Romans 9. Not new. And the teaching of election is from of old. It's from the beginning. The hardening and softening of hearts, pharaohs and otherwise, has always been attested to in the word of God. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. That's not difficult. And like rivers of water, the Lord turns the heart of the king wherever he wants. What makes that hard is we start thinking, why did he make that guy do that? You could have asked that this morning from Mark. When Pilate asked Jesus a question, and Jesus was silent. Or the scribes and Pharisees asked him questions, and he didn't defend himself. He was sitting there thinking, if you only knew who I was. Whew. Well, they know now. Many have objected over the centuries to Joseph. Imagine objecting, objecting to Joseph. You can object to almost anyone in the scripture, but Joseph? Talk about a guy who could have used his victimhood as his badge, and he never did it. Because 
Joseph seemingly exonerated the sins of his brothers who sold him into slavery and told his father that he was killed and left it out there for, I forget the math, what is it, like 15, 16 years before they finally let old Jacob know? Because Joseph was the favorite and envy rose up, always suspect, suspect envy. So they object against Joseph because he said, do not be afraid. He says to the brothers, do not be afraid. I am in the place of God. <laughs> I am in the place of God. And then he said these famous words, but as for you, you meant evil against me. You sinned, you did evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. God uses the sin of man for good purposes. Joseph said it, some people don't like it. But it's just like Romans 9. Those people did those things, those brothers did those things, because it was God's plan to do it. God meant it for good. Didn't say he allowed it. We always like to go there, well, he allowed it. Sovereignty doesn't allow, sovereignty directs. For his own purposes, God used the brothers against Joseph. And you may say that God's then responsible for the sin. See, this is the difficult part. But that's short-sighted, because all men are sinners. Next week, I want to try to, or the week after, try to unlock for you what it means to harden someone's heart and how that operation happens. There's several ways God does that. And I think the ways may surprise you, although... If you're careful in your reading, you know, certainly God allowed Job to be tested by Satan. That's one way God hardens hearts and directs men. What does he say in 1 Corinthians? Deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. He tells the, the saints, deliver him over to Satan. What does that mean? Be outside the church where Satan is. Satan's not in here. This is for the saints and the Holy Spirit. Friends, all men are sinners, and if God turns their sins to bring about a good outcome, is that not a great work of God? He uses several methods to harden hearts. He may use the sin that is present in them to do so, or he may simply withdraw, as we spoke about in Romans 1. Withdraw his restraining influences. We read in Romans 1, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lusts of their hearts, friends, the lusts were already in their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Verse 24, and in verse 28, he said, God gave them over to a debased mind. He's no longer going to clean up your thoughts for you. God gave them strong delusion, he said to the Thessalonians. God gave them strong delusion that they should believe the lie because they did not have in them the love of the truth. Not the understanding, just the love. You can love the truth of God without yet understanding it, and God expects us to approach the word that way. So when you ask the question, who are you, old man? Answer the question by, I am a lover of the oracles of God, even though in them are contained some difficult things that even Pastor Dan can't understand. Remember your doctrine, friends. Total depravity. Total means total. Depravity means depravity. Man is incapable of good. And it is the intervening grace of God that allows us to do anything that's even seemingly or relatively good. 
When God takes that away, we can't do anything good. The saints can. We have the Holy Spirit. But the natural man cannot. And from Genesis we read this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. You know the verse. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's when God withdraws his restraining grace. Every thought is evil. Every thought is selfish and self-promoting. And then we read, so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. I haven't heard anyone complaining about those verses. The world's full of people in Noah's time. We don't know how many. I'm suggesting to you millions. And the Lord saves eight I hope our tender consciences can see that God was always in charge of his creation. It's nothing new. It shouldn't have taken us by surprise when we got here. He always intervened in the thought, life, and actions of men. We ought to be thankful and not doubtful or angry with God for intervening in the ways he chooses. We have only to consider the alternative to see the complete destruction that we have avoided because God did the steering I've heard no objections of God loving Jacob. Nobody's mad at God for loving Jacob. Only of hating Esau. But if God is just, why should he love anyone so evil as Jacob? That's not justice. We should say, ah, God is not just. There's unrighteousness with God. He loved Jacob. But since loving is nice, we're okay with it. And we don't question it. His hatred would have been just. His hatred is justice. His love is from mercy. Justice is earned. Mercy is bestowed on us, though it's not earned. We don't complain about that. Everyone deserved to be hated, but he loved some. It was his mercy. Mercy does not emerge out of the heart of the sinner. It flows out of the heart of the bestower, the judge. A judge is an awesome responsibility. And I hope our judges in this country understand that. And I believe for the most part they do. I know you're in your echo chambers, but I see it firsthand. And I think they get it. And of course, there's always those who don't. Mercy comes out of the heart of the lover, not out of the heart of the condemner. If we look at things with justice in mind, God should have destroyed all things. Be thankful that he chose you and in awe that he chose you while others were left behind. Not awed to arrogance, though, but awed to humility. Instead of, why me, Lord? It's, why me, Lord? I've heard people ask, but I thought God so loved the world. You ever hear someone say that? How could he be like that if God so loved the world? I would ask you this. Did God not love the world in Noah's time? Of course he did. He created it. He saw that it was good. A few centuries later, it went south, and God sought to fix it. And how did he do it? He chose a representative sample. He saved man by choosing a representative sample of man to repopulate it. It's on his resume. That's how he does it. My question is to them, when they say, I thought God so loved the world, is did God love the world less in Noah's time? My answer is that he did not. He loved it as much as he does today. He loved Noah's evil world as much as he loves our evil world. But in each case, by different means, he chose to save the world by securing a representative few. 
a fact that is graphically displayed in Noah's world. In Noah's time, he gave us Noah. In our time, he gave us Jesus Christ. Noah lived to save the world, but Christ died to save the world. Where are the objectors of God's methods in either case? The sovereign does what he does, because it's who and what he is. If we're surprised by uh, his methods, let's be pleasantly surprised. If we object to the one and not the other, we've become our own judge. We've become our own gods. What did John say at the end of 1 John? Little children, keep yourself from idols. (laughs) Those who object to the choices God makes, to those who are appalled at divine discrimination, that's what it is, divine discrimination, I'll choose whom I'll choose, I'll say, to you, I'll say that you presume too much and perhaps read too little. Why have you not read what the psalmist sang and became angry with God's method long before you came to Romans 9? Where's the outrage that God inflamed the hatred of the enemies of Israel against them? God made Israel stronger than their Egyptian friends into whose land they migrated in the time of Joseph. And you may remember in the opening lines to the book of Exodus, and there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And then we read, there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, Psalm 105, 8, and turned the heart, turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. That's an awesome statement of sovereignty. God turned the Egyptians' hearts against his own people so he could condemn them. If you were going to be angry at Romans 9, you should have come across that years ago in your reading. The psalmist goes on to retell the story, and he sings of it. Remember, these are songs. He sent Moses his servant, and Aaron whom whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them, and wonders in the land of Ham... He sent darkness and made it dark. They did not rebel against his word. He turned their waters into blood. He killed their fish. Their land abounded with frogs, even in the chambers of the kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and lice in all their territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He devoured the fruit of their ground. He also destroyed all the firstborn in their land, the first of all their strength. He also brought Israel out with silver and gold. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. That's what sovereignty does. Get prepared to receive it. As they say, I don't write this stuff. There's plenty of places to complain that God is harsh, if that's what you intend to do. I don't intend to do that. Plenty of places. Do you remember when they came into Jericho and Rahab in the red light district received the spies? She became the great-grandmother of Christ. I hope you know that. She was a Moabite. But um, So they came into the land of Jericho And Rahab told the spies, everyone's heart here is afraid of you. Our hearts melted when we saw what God did for you at the Red Sea, which was 40 years earlier, if you did the math. They were in the desert 40 years. But the the fear of God spread upon them. Their hearts melted within them, she said. 
God not only put the fear of himself in these Egyptians I spoke of, he put the fear of his chosen people in them as well. They were afraid of the Israelites. Give them gold, just get them out of here. Of course, what do they do? Go into the desert and melt the gold down and make a, an idol. But it was God himself who inflamed Egypt against his own. And the same is said in the New Testament. We like to say, well, that's the Old Testament God. Even Herod and Pilate were turned by God to commit the crimes that they committed. And when the apostles returned from their punishment, remember Peter and John, they went out and preached the word, and the Sanhedrin brought them in and whipped them and beat them and said, don't preach in that name anymore, which of course did nothing. And they said they were delighted to, be, uh, uh, to suffer uh, for the name of, God, name of Jesus. And so they got together after that and they prayed. And this is their prayer. Why did the nations rage? Of course, they're quoting uh, the Old Testament. Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of God, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined beforehand to be done. This is the constant, continual celebration of God's sovereignty. Romans 9 has no monopoly on this subject. It's all throughout Scripture. If there was ever a statement of the hardening of the already sinful hearts of Herod and Pilate, it is this prayer of the apostles. They were well aware of the prerogative of sovereignty to turn the hearts of kings and slaves. They were well aware. Now, I know that every believer who's troubled by such graphic statements of sovereignty want me to explain how such things can be. Paul doesn't explain it. He just says one and says the other. He's not embarrassed to juxtapose them, to tell us to believe two things that in our finite minds seem to be contradictory. They're not contradictory. They work hand in hand. And in future weeks, I will try to make some pathways into understanding there. But first, we have to answer the question, who are you, O man, to answer against God? And if we come up with the wrong answer, we don't deserve an explanation. Like the anticipated questions of Paul, people are sometimes troubled and they ask, will you say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? And so Paul's answer must be our answer. Indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? You know, Pilate wanted to release him. You know, there's somewhere in me, I know I've said this to you before, that I always felt kind of sorry for Pilate's position. He politically had to do what he did. He was in a tough spot. If you know about any of his history, he couldn't inflame the Jews anymore, and they wanted this guy dead, and he had to do it. But all these things were worked together from the master planner, and what did Jesus say to Pilate? You're guilty for handing me over, but the one who handed me to you is guiltier than you are. <laughs> He's in more trouble than you. I always presumed he meant Judas. Before we can have our answer as to how these things work together, we must confront the dichotomy as it is written. God is sovereign, but man is still responsible for his own sins. We must become docile before the Lord and the teaching of the word. As Paul wrote elsewhere, and we love these verses, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you 
both to will, which means decide, and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without faults in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Friends and the saints, God is both willing and doing through us but at the same time tells us to work it out for ourselves. Remember Jude? Does anyone read Jude anymore? He's a brother of Jesus, just like James. That's the assessment. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for condemnation. Talking of the church. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and, des- and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Peter writes... I'll close with Peter's words. Therefore, it is also contained in the scriptures. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The glory that Christ is to you, he is an offense to those who can't see his glory. They stumble, being disobedient to what? The word. To which they also were appointed. The Bible's full of his sovereignty. You I have appointed to glory. How does he say it here? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And so Peter goes on. He speaks of these who are offended by Christ. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Praise God for that choice. There will come a time when we will see the destruction of the wicked and we will be glad that God is sovereign and that we are not. Father, in Jesus' name, give us a revelation of the truth of your sovereignty. It is from one end of your written word to the other. Let us not be surprised or appalled. O Father, in Jesus' name, let us approach the word with humility, knowing that in the beginning was the word The Word was with God. The Word was God. Amen.